0: Good morning. My name is Peter. I'm one of the elders here for our church. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. Uh, please know that we are delighted to have you. And the children are welcome to stay with us. Hearing the word and, and joining us in worship is a privilege for, for all of us. If, however, you find your child to be distracting to yourself or others, you're free to make use of our nursery Uh, Which is down the stairs out here, uh, and to the right, uh, all the way down at the end of the hallway. And I have the privilege of introducing you to Steve Lutz, our guest preacher this morning. We are grateful to be a part of a group of churches in State College that's called the City Church. And for the next four weeks, we're having a special sermon series along with all of the churches who are part of the City Church. That series is called One Voice. It's uh, meant to express our unity and our prayers together for the city. And so to help us kick off that series, we invited Pastor Steve Lutz to preach the first sermon for us. Steve is one of the pastors for Calvary Church. Uh, He particularly serves the Midtown campus, and we're really glad to have you here to preach the
1: word, Steve. Thanks. Thank you, Peter. Good morning to you. Glad to be here. I was grateful to receive uh, the invitation from Peter to, to join you and heard great things about your fellowship here uh, over the years. I don't get to visit many other churches very often, so this is a special treat. And uh, excited what the next month holds for us as we uh, put this unity you know, into, into work, into action, put it on display, preaching together, serving together, and then, of course, culminating uh, May 1st at Eisenhower. Pretty excited about that. Our, our connection has, has already been demonstrated. Actually, that prayer request for Katie and Esley Felice—they're they're part of the congregation that, that I serve—and it's good to hear the Body of Christ praying for them and coming around them uh, with the birth of their daughter, Emberly. We uh, this morning, as we kick off this series, I want to invite us to turn to John chapter 17. We're going to be looking at Jesus' prayer there. Uh, starting, we're going to look at verse 20 to begin. And as we look at this prayer, this is Jesus, one of Jesus' great prayers. And uh, many times we, we have Him praying, and, and they're all prayers that we should pay attention to. As great as this prayer is, often called the High Priestly Prayer, it's not that long. But there is so much packed in it. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said that some people pray by the yard, but true prayer is measured by weight and not by length. If you've ever been in a room with someone praying for an extremely long time, you can appreciate what Spurgeon means there. This is not a long prayer, but it is very weighty. It is very significant. It has a great deal for us. And so let me read to you from John 17, starting in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, Well, we should take note of what Jesus is praying for. Anytime He's praying, we should take note of what He's praying for, especially here in this moment. If you know the context of what's happening here in John, He is about to be arrested. He is about to go to His sham trial, to His death on the cross, executed as a criminal. And on His mind, He knows, of course, that this is what is about to happen. Nothing in Jesus' life happens by accident, but by divine intentionality. And on Jesus' mind, as he approaches the cross, is prayer. And he prays for himself, and he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for us, those who would believe the message that was preached by the apostles. And as he's praying, what is he praying for us? He's praying that we would be one. He is praying on Jesus' mind, on Jesus' heart, as he goes to the cross, is that we would be united, united with him and united with one another. And we would say, Jesus, I'm, I'm glad that you prayed for that. In fact, Jesus, I wish that you'd maybe prayed a little bit more for that because as we look at the body of Christ today, as we look at the church, one of the things we see, in fact, one of the big knocks I hear pretty consistently against Christians, and maybe you've heard this too, If you know the truth, if you have this true message, then why are you so divided? Why can't you agree? Why are there so many churches? Why are there so many denominations? Why are there, you know, in every stripe of Christianity, it seems that there's an alphabet soup of different denominations. Baptists alone have ABC, SBC, you know, BGC, XYZ, for all I know. Why are you so divided? And so when we look at Christianity, we see that Jesus' prayer for unity, it's needed. It's much needed that we hear and see what Jesus prayed for and accomplished. And, and so when we look at Jesus' prayer here, what are we seeing? We're seeing that unity is on his heart, that it's essential to our connection with Christ. Key to our relationship with God is to understand union with him, what that means. And that it's also essential to the spread of the gospel. If the world will know who Jesus is, he says that's intimately connected to our unity with one another. In fact, Jesus says this earlier in the Gospel of John. He says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Friends, we are meant to be known by our love, not by our division. But it's easier said than done. And it's vitally important. So how do we get there? Well, let's look at what Jesus is praying for here. The first thing I want us to see is that he is praying for and then going to accomplish something that is a deep, deep desire for each one of us, a longing to belong. You and I are created with a longing to be connected, to belong somewhere, to know others and have them know us. Have you ever started a new job or moved into a new neighborhood? or started in a new school, and had that sensation that there's an inside, and I'm not in it. I'm on the outside. Maybe you don't get the jokes. Maybe you don't get all the references. Maybe you're not invited to the same things that everybody else is, and you feel disconnected. You might even feel alienated. You might even feel lonely. And why? Because there's this longing that we have to be connected, to belong to each other. For a while, people held out the hope that social media would create this great sense of belonging, and then, you know, read the comments on a YouTube video sometime. It's not really accomplishing that, is it? But we look for it, and we long for it. You know, I remember, for, for me, I felt this, you may not know this about me, but I have a history as a, uh, as a gangbanger. Yeah, I, I started a gang. Now, I was in second grade, and it was at a Christian school in the suburbs, but I started a gang. I was new to this school in second grade, and I didn't really know anybody, and I had that longing to belong, and so I decided, well, what better way to do that than I'll just, I'll start a gang, and I'll invite the people that I want to be friends with into my gang, and I didn't know enough to say, you know, you're supposed to have, like, special tricky handshakes and cool leather jackets and stuff, but we had pamphlets, and I painstakingly created those with Crayola. We had a logo and everything, and we were called the Survivors. Survivors of what? It was second grade, but <laughs> we were survivors. And I invited my friends into it, and pretty soon other people wanted to get into the gang. And I said, "No, you can't. It's my gang." So they started their gangs, and pretty soon the second grade playground was filled with inter-gang warfare. You know, taking someone's turn on the swing and saying mean words to each other, folks. It was bad. And eventually, some of the teachers stepped in. And they said, "Listen, we're not going to do this this gang thing." It leaves people out, and eventually I figured out some better ways to make friends. But it all came out of this idea of we want to belong, we want to be connected, we want to know who our friends are, who we're connected to. And what, what Jesus is saying here, what he is offering to us is in fact this, that this longing that you have to belong is most fully expressed through union with him, That leads to unity with one another. And this is not something that you have to create. It's not something that you can achieve even. It is this. It's a gift. It is given to us. He says this here. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. This unity, this belonging, this connectedness that we seek is the result of Jesus' gift to us. It's been won for us by Jesus. It's been achieved for us, paid for us, given to us. It is first and foremost something that we must receive, not achieve. It's been won by His blood, it's been won by His redemptive work. And so, before we can even talk about unity with one another, we must first understand this union with Christ that is given to us, that is achieved for us. He says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. And friends, so when we look at this this gift, we see that union with Christ is very much an expression and connected to the center of the gospel itself. We're talking about the gospel here. Now, the gospel is incomprehensibly deep and rich, and we'll never get to the end of understanding it. One of my favorite analogies, ways of describing it, and perhaps you've heard this as well, is think of the gospel like a jewel, like a massive jewel. Have you ever seen one of these gigantic jewels like the Hope Diamond on display? And you know when these jewels are, are cut, they do it in such a way, and any, any jewel or anybody who knows what they're doing will set off this jewel you know, against like the black velvet, and then they'll have the lighting perfectly wide so it so can catch the facets of it, right? And the gospel is a jewel with many, many facets. And if you are a believer in Jesus, it's because at least initially, that jewel, one of those facets, caught your eye. And so when we think of the gospel, there are, there are many facets to it. One of the facets might be this, that sinners are declared righteous. That our sins are forgiven. That in the courtroom of God, He has declared, though your sins are great, I declare you not guilty. In other words, we are justified. Justification is a beautiful facet of the gospel. Another one is this, is that, that in Christ, through His grace and work in us, that we can become more like Jesus. That He is in the process of making perfect those who he has already declared to be perfect. He is sanctifying us, sanctification, another jewel of the gospel. Or this, that though we were cut off, that though we were separated, that though spiritually we are all orphans, that he has adopted us into his family and welcomed us in and said, come in, come into my house, sit at my table, eat and drink. Everything that I have is yours. You are part of my family now. You are my beloved son, or daughter, you are my heir. I adopt you. Adoption is a facet. I draw great comfort from another facet, this idea that one day the body will be completely resurrected, that all things will be made new, that glorification is coming, and that this life is not the end, but something far greater is to come. Glorification is another facet of the gospel, and we could go on and on and on, because the gospel is a jewel with many facets, but at the heart, at the center of the gospel is this, union with Christ. There is nothing greater than the, than the realization that we are united with Christ, and He unites Himself to us. And John Piper speaks for many divines and theologians throughout the centuries when he says this, that the best thing in the universe is to be united to Christ, to be in Christ, to enjoy union with Him. When this is fully understood, nothing is greater experientially and nothing is greater theologically. You cannot experience anything greater than the fullness of union with Christ. And nothing reaches higher in theology and nothing is more theologically comprehensive than the fullness of union with Christ. So say many of our most esteemed witnesses throughout the centuries. Paul says this in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Jesus Christ lives in me. Friends, there's nothing greater than union with Jesus Christ. And it is meant to be glorious. It is meant to be an absolutely glorious thing. Jesus says in verse 22, I've given them my glory that you have given me. And our union union with Christ is is meant to lead to unity with others who are also united with Christ. There's meant to be glory in the unity, and there's beauty in it. In fact, we might say this, that nothing gives us a greater glimpse of the glory Jesus prayed for here than our unity with each other. You say, well, when I get glimpses of some of the ways that we come together, it's frankly kind of messy, Steve. Glory is not the first word that comes to mind. In fact, when I think about relationships that I've had, strained relationships, burned bridges, I often think it's more messy than it is glorious. But here we see part of what Jesus is praying for and part of what He is doing even now. There's glory in the mess. Yes, it's messy. How do we reconcile the frequent messes the church finds herself in? The divisions, the hypocrisies, the embarrassments with this glory that Jesus promised. Well, let me put it to you this way. I've done quite a few weddings over the years. Maybe you've been involved in weddings in in various capacities, maybe your own, maybe as a groomsman or a bridesmaid. Here's what I've observed in doing many weddings over the years. The, The first is this, that in the weeks, and especially the days leading up to the big day, I should expect that at some point the bride will be a mess. She will probably be a mess several times, in fact, and we just expect expect this. After all, there is an awful lot to worry about. I would say it's completely justifiable for the bride to feel this way. There's so many details to worry about. There's the reception, and there's the flowers, and will they get that right? And there's the invitation cards, and then there's the seating chart. Oh, my word, the seating chart, right? The stress and the drama around who's going to sit with who, and they don't like that person. They can't sit there. They can't sit on that corner of the room. They need to be over here, and will they get along? And the photographer will you know will they do their thing and the hair and the makeup? And of course, there's this big question: will the dress still fit? These are all the questions that a bride is wrestling with and thinking about, and that's before all the people arrive. Because then the relational drama starts. And you have all these people rolling into town, and you have the mother of the bride doing her thing, and then you have the in-laws and the new and how's that gonna go? And then the knuckle-headed brother who forgot to show up for the rehearsal, and will he remember his job tomorrow? Right? There's a lot of things for a bride to to lose it over. And justifiably so. And then, you know, it's a wonder, as as someone who's officiated these weddings, it's a wonder if you get through the rehearsal without the bride breaking down at least once. We just expect that. It's just normal. But here's the second thing I know. Come that wedding day. Come that moment when those doors open in the back. The bride makes her appearance to walk down the aisle, you know what? Without fail, she will look glorious. She will look amazing. She will look beautiful. And when you're at that wedding, what do you do? You look back and you see that bride, and then what's the next thing you do? You look at the groom, right? How is he reacting? And quite frequently, that's his turn to lose it. Then he becomes the blubbering mess. And we love that. And it's a beautiful picture. And you know what? All the mess and all the breakdowns and all the details of the previous few days are now forgotten because of how radiant, how beautiful, how glorious. And even though we know that that's coming, we say, wow, one, she looks amazing. Two, how did she do it? I saw her yesterday. She didn't look this good yesterday. How did she do it? And we're amazed and we're awestruck by by what we see and friends you know think think about if you're married or think about a wedding you've been to think think about that moment there's only been one time in my life where i had to be told to to breathe i'm normally pretty much in control of my you know autonomic nervous system but on my wedding day when my wife started making her way down the aisle. I pretty much forgot to breathe. I lost it. I was the blubbering mess. In fact, on the video, you can see my parents sitting in the front row telling me, Steve, breathe. breathe. you need to breathe. Why? Because I lost it. Friends, here's what we know about the church who is the bride of Christ. She's frequently a mess right now. She frequently loses it. Loses her composure. Doesn't look great. Does not look anything like what she will one day be. But one day there is a wedding day coming and on that day she will be radiant. And she will be glorious. And she will be beautiful. And on that day the bridegroom, Jesus himself, well he may even lose it. Because the bride that day will be so beautiful. And the mess preceding that wedding day will be forgotten. we know that's what's going to happen. That's where history itself is headed. We have pictures of this in the Bible. and Revelation talks about that. And just like now, when you go to a wedding and you know the bride will somehow come out looking amazing, but the question is, what will she look like and how will she do it? Friends, in the same way, the question now for the church is, what will she look like one day and how will she do it? Because one day the church will look radiant, but how will she look beautiful? How will she look lovely and transcendent and beautiful and amazing? And you know, the other question is, you know, we get to help answer that. We are a part of that. We are part of helping the bride look beautiful, being prepared for that day with her husband. In fact, every time that we put into practice what Jesus is praying for here, we get to adorn the bride of Christ with beauty. And we do that through seeking unity with each other. Each time we accept someone different from us. Each time we come alongside someone in need. Each time we reconcile or forgive. Each time we overlook an offense. Each time we love each other, even when it's hard. Each time we pray for and bless those who have hurt us. Each time we plead for God to give us the love for someone that we have a hard time loving. Every time we do that, We adorn the bride of Christ with beauty. Every time we do that, it's like a stitch in the garment. It's like a jewel on the gown. And it prepares the bride of Christ for that wedding day. Isaiah looked ahead to this in chapter 62. He says, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you will be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. See, the bride of Christ may be a mess right now, but He will call us, My delight is in her. And friends, every single one of us gets to be a part of that. Every single one of us. The union that we have in Christ overflows in such a way that it connects the disconnected. It makes lovely the unlovable. It takes the lonely and surrounds them with friends. It takes the orphans and surrounds them with a family. It unites the divided and it makes us whole and complete and perfected. Every one of us. Part of that adorning of the bride of Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. See friends, we are united with Christ in order to be united in Christ. Our union with Jesus must overflow to a real practical union, unity with each other. In fact, if we try to seek unity with each other without that connection to Jesus, it won't be strong. It won't be long-lived. Think of it like this. There's there's a vast amazing world out there that we call the internet where we seek to be connected to all kinds of interesting things and and people and, and yet you know when you're trying to connect to that internet, you need the signal, right? You need the Wi-Fi. Oh, the search, the never-ending search for the good Wi-Fi signal. And if you don't have that Wi-Fi signal, you can't connect to everything else. Friends, in the same way, if we are not strongly connected to Jesus, we will not be connected to one another. The signal will drop. It'll be buffering. That's the worst, right? We will not have that strong connection with others unless we are strongly connected to With Jesus, But when our union with Jesus is strong, then our union with each other will be strong. And here's the other thing, though. It actually, that that analogy breaks down because it works the other way as well. When our unity with each other grows, it's like a signal booster that connects us to Jesus. We need that connection with each other to grow our connection to Jesus because each one of us gives us different glimpses of different facets of the gospel itself. Many of you know that C.S. Lewis and and J.R.R. Tolkien, in addition to uh, being two of the great authors of the 20th century, that they were also close friends, and that Tolkien had a a big role in Lewis coming to faith in Jesus uh, later in life, coming from atheism. And they were part of a group called the Inklings, which, um, among other things, they got together pretty regularly to drink beer, smoke pipes, and critique each other's writings as they were in process, and so they would get together at this pub and read what would become the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings to each other. And in fact, pretty famously, Tolkien hated Narnia. He just he just thought it was sloppy, and you know the allegory was too obvious, and he just he just thought Jack C.S. Lewis should should try harder, do better. <laughs> but they loved each other, and they were good friends, and there were other members of this of this group as well. And in the Four Loves. Lewis wrote about the kinds of relationships they had. And on the occasion where another one of the group, Charles Williams, passed away, he wrote this. Uh, He said, by myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I need other lights than my own to show off all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I'll never again see Tolkien's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Tolkien, now that I have him to myself, now that Charles is gone, I actually have less of Tolkien. You think about your family, you think about your close friends, you think about different ways that different people bring out different aspects of each other. And friends, it's the same way in our relationship with Christ. I need you, you need me, we need each other because we see Jesus in different ways. The story that he's weaving, the story that he is writing in our lives allows us to see different aspects of Him. And so the more that we are connected to one another, the more of this great and glorious Savior that we will see. We need others to help us see more facets of Jesus so that we just don't have tunnel vision, me and Jesus. There's really no such thing as a me and Jesus faith. It has to be we and Jesus. And so this means that diversity is a good thing. There is glory and beauty in diversity. We need to know many Christians, including those who aren't just like us. And we need more churches, including those that aren't just like ours. And we need to seek partnership whenever possible and do things like this, or serving with City Serve, or joint worship gatherings, or worship as one as we had last week. When I think about the impact of other believers on my life, I'm struck by how often that was people who were very unlike me. Several years ago, my previous church in Philadelphia, we had developed a a partnership with the Christian Church of Southern Sudan, and we brought over Bishop Taban and his wife. And Bishop Taban was a large, imposing man who was probably about 6'5", deep, gravelly voice, had lived through some horrific things in his life there, his country engulfed by civil war, Christians often persecuted for most of his life there. And, uh, but I wasn't nervous about having him over for dinner. I was nervous about having his wife, because in her previous life, before becoming a Christian, she had been an assassin. Like a for real, le- legit assassin. she That's what she did. And I thought, well, I hope she likes dinners. <laughs> <laughs> I hope she likes what we're serving. I was working the grill that night, and I'm thinking, don't burn the meat tonight. No, actually, make sure it's well cooked. Don't want anybody getting sick. But as we sat with them at the table and as they told us their stories, learned so much from them. Learned what it was like to follow Jesus in a place where that could very easily lead to death. What does it mean to care for one another when you don't even know if or where you might be able to meet for church like this on any given week? Learn what it meant to forgive your enemies and to love them and to love even those who would persecute you. And when I asked, like, what, what's it like pastoring in a place where you have so little? He said, don't, don't worry about me. He said, I'm concerned about you. How can you possibly follow Jesus and lead others to do that when you have so much? You have so much. Why would people even need Jesus? He said, I'm, I'm worried about you. And learned, he just saw things in a, in a different light because of Bishop Taban. Very different lives, very different backgrounds, and yet we had so much in common through jesus because of that we see different facets of who jesus and our picture of him is enriched friends through the many the glory of christ is revealed to us and shines all the brighter but we also need each other for this reason and jesus makes this clear in this passage he says he says it's intimately connected to the world knowing who he is so that the world may know. Verse 23, he said, May they be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Friends, the world will not know who Jesus is unless we love one another. The world will not hear this message in the way that they should unless we are coming together and accepting one another as Jesus has accepted us. And what gets in the way of that? I do. You do. We do. And since unity is so important, the world and our sinful natures and the enemy want to do everything they can to keep us divided. So what do we do? We have to join Jesus in this prayer. We must seek and pray for the unity that Jesus offers to us and that he has achieved for us. And so we make this our prayer, Lord, make us one. Lord, make us one. You go through the New Testament, and you see Paul constantly echoing the prayers that Jesus prays for here in John 17. Virtually every one of his epistles, at some point, he prays for unity. And quite often, he has to tell people that we don't know anything else about, but says, please get along with each other. Would you please stop fighting with each other? Would you please stop being divided? This is not good for you. It's not good for the church. You have to love one another. One of those places, Romans, which we think of as this great theological treatise, also includes a bunch of these names. And this plea in Romans 15, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the unity and the glory connected yet again. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And I like there how he says, endurance, endurance, and encouragement. That means this is not supposed to be easy, friends, but it is important. And so because of that, we must cultivate the connection, the connection with Christ and with each other. I read a book recently called Flash Boys by uh, Michael Lewis. He wrote like The Big Short and Moneyball and Blindside and a host of other really interesting books. And this book is about um, high-frequency trading. And the book described... Um, some of these these uh, stock market traders and based in North Jersey and how they had discovered a way to essentially work the market in a very profitable way for them by um, uh, kind of manipulating things so that they would get information about the market fractions of seconds before everybody else did. And they'll be able to make billions of dollars in these literally microseconds. And so to increase their competitive advantage they laid fiber optic cable from their base in North Jersey all the way to the Chicago Stock Exchange. And as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking, boy, if you got to go from Jersey to Chicago, that's probably got to go through Pennsylvania at some point. Well, I get to the end of the book, and he talks about riding a bike with some, with some other people along part of the path of this fiber optic cable from Jersey to Chicago. And he says, yeah, and then I, I rode past this big round barn, and I'm thinking, well, I, I know of a big round barn around here. Then he talks about Rothrock State Forest, and then he talks about going right down Route 45 and the poles in the ground that mark where this cable is buried. They're white poles with little orange tips, and I'm saying I know exactly where that is because that's about a hundred yards from my house. I could hit that with a rock and thinking, boy, here's this cable that they. Here's what they did: they spent millions and millions of dollars and countless man hours. And I can't imagine how many different negotiations with probably hundreds of municipalities to lay this fiber optic cable from Jersey to Chicago and, and you know what? You know what for? To gain three or four microseconds for their high frequency trading. Now those three or four microseconds proved to be highly lucrative and for some of them um highly uh jailworthy. <laughs> But it got me thinking to this. Friends, they expended so much money, so much energy to make a treasure that they cannot take with them, that moth and rust will destroy, that will ultimately not make them happy. But for them, it was worth it to gain three or four microseconds. And it got me thinking of this. They cultivated that connection because they wanted it that badly. How much more? Should the body of Christ do everything we can to cultivate the connection that we have with Jesus and with one another? Because when we do that, it will bear fruit that lasts forever it will reap a treasure that we can take with us because it means other people coming to know Jesus. And that is something that lasts forever. And that is something that is greater than any billions, any hedge fund could accumulate. It is something that Jesus says, this is, this is beautiful, this is worthwhile. It is something that we can look at for eternity and say, i got to be a part of that person coming to know Jesus. Friends, how much more should we invest in that? How much more should we invest our lives, our energy, our resources in cultivating this connection with Jesus and one another? That is what matters. That is what has great significance. And so we need to do everything we can. That's why in Ephesians 4, Paul says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Make every effort. We might even say this, friends, that we need to fight for unity. Not fight each other, but fight against the things that would keep us from being reconciled. Keep us from loving each other. We need to speak well of each other. We need, to, we need to not be isolated. We need to be connected with each other. And we need to pray for our city the way Jesus prayed for us. Like I said, this is not meant to be easy. If it was easy, Jesus wouldn't have prayed for it. Paul wouldn't have mentioned it constantly but it is worth it. And you know what sustains us when it's hard, when we lean into that hard conversation to be reconciled, when we lean into loving somebody who we find it difficult to love? You know what sustains us? Well, we look at what Jesus promised us here. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. This vision of the glory that's revealed in our unity with Christ and with each other. And I think he would invite us to look ahead to that glorious moment when the bride of Christ is revealed. And Revelation gives us that beautiful picture in 21. John says this, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold... The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Friends, one day the union with Christ that is now by faith, it'll be by sight. The union that we know in part will be perfected. The unity that we seek with one another that even today is marred by grievances and misunderstandings and unforgiveness, one day that'll be perfected perfect union with Jesus, unity with one another. Friends, one day that's coming, and we know it's for certain. The drama that remains is how will the bride become so beautiful and so radiant, and how will we be a part of it, adorning her with the beauty that will one day be hers. Let's let that vision sustain us. Let's let that vision of what Jesus is doing strengthen us to love one another as Christ has loved us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that as we look to the future, as we look to this this glorious moment that ends all of history, that one day your bride will be revealed in all her beauty, we thank you that we get to be a part of that. And so, Father, forgive us for any ways in which we have shortchanged that, in which we have, we have not given what we should to loving each other. Because when we love one another, we, we are also loving you. And when we love each other, we are loving the bride that you love so much that you gave your life for. And so we pray that though it is often hard, let us make every effort to come together and for the union that we enjoy with you to be expressed in our unity with each other. May we be one as you are one. May we enjoy what you have invited us into the unity that the Trinity has experienced from all eternity, you invite us into that connection with you and we praise you for it and we thank you for it. We pray all this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.